The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. I just realized I got to get rid of the Halloween decorations and make them just more fall centric. <laughs> We've never really decorated the studio before, but you know, since I'm at home, I thought I would I would jazz it a little, make it a little Halloween. I hope you guys all had a good Halloween. It was, you know, I mean, it was a different Halloween, right? But I'm sure that later on in life, we're all going to be talking about, we'll tell stories about the Halloween, right? When we were in the great isolation. I, all, all of it will romanticize all of it later. Uh, anyway, uh, thrilled to be here with you. I'm Shannon Penrod, and we are with you live this morning on this lovely November 2nd here in the United States. And guess what we're not going to talk about today? What's happening tomorrow? Uh, except to say that I hope if you haven't voted already, please vote. It is your uh, your right. And and I, I have an announcement that I want to make about Thursday because we're we're doing a special uh, town hall on Thursday. It's free, free to everybody. If you are an individual who's on the spectrum or you have an adult child or an about to be adult child on the autism spectrum, I would encourage you to join. I know that sometimes in some circles, conservatorship, which is what the topic of the town hall is, can get a bad rap because it's all about a person's rights. And you know, when you turn 18, you have the rights of an adult. And that is a very important milestone. And I want to be clear that here on Autism Live, we really celebrate the rights of individuals and want to help them to be able to have more rights, not less rights. But sometimes there are some individuals who, even though they're 18 years old and um, you know, the law would say they have the right to certain things, sometimes it makes them vulnerable and puts them in a position where someone else can take advantage of them. And one of the things I love about this town hall is we're going to talk about the fact that conservatorship is not an all or nothing. That, for instance, uh, individuals on the autism spectrum have the right to vote. And that being conserved does not have to mean having that right taken away. And that's why I really want to get really good information about conservatorship. I know many families who made the decision that they weren't going to do conservatorship because they didn't want to take away their child's rights. I totally, totally get that. But then they got into a situation where the child was ill or injured and the doctors and the nurses and the hospital would not allow, like the child was unconscious and they would not tell the parents what were going on because of HIPAA laws and things of that nature. So we're going to talk on Thursday at this town hall with a really wonderful family attorney about, you know, you might want to just have um, conservatorship allow 
for you to have access um, to medical information to help them to make decisions, not be the ultimate be all. So we're going to talk about all of that. And I think it's a really important conversation. Hey, I'm saying hello to Christina and Renee and Elvira and John. So thrilled that you guys are here with us this morning. So in any case, that's on Thursday. It's a very special webinar at a special time. And we're going to give you more information about that. You know what else is on Thursday? During the live show, Dr. Barry Prezant is going to be here, author of the book Uniquely Human, which I think is at my office at work and which bums me out because otherwise I'd be showing you the cover of it. Great, great, great book. And so he's going to be here with us. He's been on the show before when we've been on the road, like we've interviewed him at conferences, but we've never had him on the live show like this. So so thrilled. It was always a, we'll wait till you're in LA and we'll have you in the studio. Well, now we're going to have him on via this, right? <laughs> how that's going to work because that's how everything's working. But anyway, thrilled to be here with you guys this morning. Hey, want to remind you that this whole next hour is meant to be interactive and there's lots of ways for you to participate. So let's take a look at all the different ways that you could be watching and interacting. If you're watching us live right now, chances are you're watching us in that first column. Oh, there's Dr. Prezant. See, uniquely human. Love, 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 love that. Uh, and so that is on Thursday, our live show on Thursday. But back to how you can connect with us. Uh, the first column is all the different ways that we are live. So we're live on YouTube, we're live on uh, Periscope, Twitter, and we're live on Facebook right now. Plus, we are live on our own platform on autism-live.com. Now, in each one of those different uh, platforms, there are different ways to interact. If you're watching us on YouTube, Periscope, Twitter, or Facebook, if you just put your comment in there, format, it shows up here. It aggregates and shows up here on my screen almost in real time. Uh, somebody said, isn't Britney Spears under conservatorship? My goodness, I have no knowledge of that, uh, if that is true. Um, I don't know. But um, in any case, uh, we see that you wrote that question in on YouTube and it showed up right here. It even tells me where you're writing in from, which is really cool. So feel free to write in uh, in any of those formats. If you're watching the show recorded, you're probably watching in that second column that Traven was showing you a few minutes ago, which means you might be watching us on, for instance, um, <laughs> I'm drawing a complete iTunes. You could be watching us on Ghana. You could be watching us on Google Music. You could be watching us on Deezer. And actually, you wouldn't be watching. You would be listening on most of Apple Podcasts, all of those places, and more. Any place that basically you can get podcasts. We're a free download in all of those places. If you're watching on those formats, I will tell you that the better place to write in, if you're watching and you see something and you're like, I have a question, but it's two o'clock in the morning wherever you are and the show is not live. Best thing to do is to go to autism-live.com and go to the little chat button at the bottom and write your question. Make sure that you reference like what you're watching. So don't just say, she said this. Well, I don't know which she, because we have lots of she's that are on the show. So you could say, well, Temple Grandin said this, um, and I'm wondering, blah, 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 whatever your question is, right? So just make sure that you reference, don't use pronouns, use actual people's names so that I have an idea of what it is that you're asking or who you want to ask the question to. Because, you know, in the, the COVID platform that we're in, we've kind of streamlined the show. So um, you may have noticed that, you know, we sort of have our regulars and then on Thursdays and Fridays, we mix it up a little bit, but, you know, we, we have Temple on, uh, on average once a month now, and we have Dr. Grampy Shea on at least two or three, three times a week and excuse me, a month. 
And we have Bonnie Yates on two or three times a month at least. So you can write in questions for those guys, you know, and I'll just thank them for the next time that they're on. Sound good? Okay. So um, anyway, we hope that you will join us in whichever way is conducive for you, whether it's live or recorded. We do have, it's almost 10 years now of videos that are available on autism-live.com. You can put in a topic and search it to see a bunch of videos. Um, and somebody just said, there's so much to learn. We have a three-year-old grandson with autism and where to start. And I, I got to be honest with you, um, I, the answer for grandparents is different than for parents, right? Um, because if, if you were, the, and, and I'm assuming, I don't know that you're, the, you might be the custodial person taking care of the individual. If it's the custodial person, the caregiver taking care of the child, the first thing that I say to them is get on a waiting list for ABA, because that might take you six months to a year. And so, you know, the first thing to do, call around, get on a waiting list. You might find a different one while you're on the waiting list, but at least you're on a waiting list, right? I want you to get good quality ABA, something we just talked about on Friday, but um, find a good quality ABA provider and get on the waiting list to get started. And then there's a whole host of other things to do and ways to teach yourself and so on and so forth. If you are the grandparent and you're not the direct caregiver, the, the thing that I want to tell you to do is to take care of the caregiver. Because, build them up, tell them that they're amazing, tell them that they're an amazing parent, and ask them, what can I do to help you? But give them breaks, show interest in their child. You know, when I'm talking to professionals in the field of autism, and they say, what can I do to um, help the caregiver so that the caregiver, basically they're saying, how can I get buy-in with the caregiver? How can I convince the caregiver that I'm one of the good guys and I want to help their child and to get them to want to work with me? And you know what I always say? Act like you like their kid. Because we've had a lot of people tell us that our kid needs to be different or that they don't want their kid to play with our kid. And as a grandparent, keep acting like you like your grandchild. And your grandchild is going to react differently than your other grandchildren, but keep acting like you are okay with that. Accept them on the terms that they're on, you know, find a way to play with that child. Believe me, we're going to show you so many things in the next two months about how to play with children on the autism spectrum. Um, we're going to give you tons of ideas with that, but get yourself ready to be able to be a person who can be a respite so that you can spend time with your grandchild and the caregiver can take a break. That is, I think, one of the biggest things that a grandparent can do. That and just supporting the caregiver and, and saying to them, what do you need? How can I help? How can I, how can I serve the wonderful parent that you are? Um, I could tell you a bunch of things to suggest to them, but if they're feeling overwhelmed, it's not gonna help anybody. And it will just create strife where they're not going to want to be around you because they feel bombarded, right? So you support them. And I think you'll find that, man, the grandparents that do that have such, it enriches their relationship with their grandchild, but it enriches their relationship with their child or their child, uh, you know, their uh, in-laws. What do you say about that? Your, your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, whichever one it is. But, and the respect that grows, listen, the people who said to me, how can I help you? And actually, like when I gave them an answer, did what I said, woo, 
ooh, those people have high stock even now, all these years later. But I'm glad that you're here. We love having grandparents here. Grandparents are a huge part of the equation and can really make things better. Uh, all right. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Anne uh, love that you're here with us. So um, we always start Monday mornings. Uh, first, I'd like to remind you that we have lots of experts that are on the show. I'm not one of them, right? Uh, maybe, maybe I would own up. To, no, I'm just evaluating. No, I'm not even an expert on that. One of the things I like to talk about in the community, though, is what it feels like, what it feels like for, um, I'm going to say, honestly, for caregivers. But I also love to talk to people who are on the spectrum and have them tell us what it feels like. I just feel like when we share, I love to talk to dads. I'm not a dad, right? But when dads tell us what it feels like, I just feel like we all get a little bit closer to realizing that we're all on the same team. And that we are all after the same mission because this show here, we're talking to that really large autism community, starts with people on the spectrum, includes everybody who loves those individuals, right? Everybody who believes in the rights and the dignity of people who are on the autism spectrum. So, but I like to talk about the feelings. It's true, but I'm not even an expert on those. I'm not even an expert on my own feelings. That's where we are. So my point is we have lots of experts here on the show. I'm not one of them. I always have an opinion. Get me wrong, always have an opinion, always willing to share my opinion, but you have to take it with a grain of salt because I'm not an expert. There are no PhD letters after my name uh, that have anything to do with autism or feelings or any of that. I'm just talking. Uh, but I am a mom and I'm a former teacher and I'm somebody who has been covering autism in this sort of format for, I don't know, 13, 14 years now and interviewing a lot of experts. And it's a privilege to be here with all of you. And I hope that you will write in and tell us what you need. And we'll try to hook that up with the expert who might know about that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, the other thing we like to do on Monday morning is that we like to start off with something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym that's kicking our keister that we cannot understand. First, we give you the actual definition, which often is so redonkulous that no one could understand. And when that's the case, we promptly make fun of it. And then we move on to a working definition, which even then, sometimes it's pretty bad, right? More jargon. But I try to give you an example of it that hopefully doesn't confuse you more, although, you know, some days. Uh, so, so that you at least have a beginning understanding of what this term is, and more importantly, how the term can help you. My whole thing is if we can save you five minutes and $5, then woohoo, we did our job for the day, right? And if we can do more, so much the better. Okay, so let's take a look at what our jargon term for the day is. What we got going on, Traven? I don't even remember. Oh, FBA, which, you know, suspiciously looks like FBI, but it's not. It has nothing to do with the Federal Bureau of anything. Uh, but this is a very important term, and you're going to hear this come up in a lot of different contexts. And knowing it and knowing that it is FBA and not FBI, I've been made fun of before because at meetings I've asked for the FBI when I was meant to be asking for FBA. So let's take a look at what our actual definition of an FBA. Don't you love it when we go to alphabet land? Yes, it's a good time. So let's take a look. FBA, what does that stand for? FBA stands for Functional Behavior Assessment. Aren't you glad you know now? And it is a multi-step 
problem solving assessment process designed to determine the function of a behavior. And if you didn't know what an FBA was, you're no closer to knowing now, are you? Uh, no. But I will tell you that some of how you will be judged moving forward in your life is if you know to ask for this, and if you know that it stands for functional behavior assessment, there's this thing where, where people will notice whether you notice a behavior instead of behavioral. Isn't that weird? It's like they separate, are you a faker or do you really know what you're talking about? So FBA, functional behavior, no behavioral assessment. Uh, okay, so we don't really know what it is from this. Let's move on to our working definition and see if we can get a little bit cozier up with this term, which has the potential to save lives. So FBA is an essential process that helps us understand why a challenging behavior is happening so that we can change it effectively. So one of the main principles of ABA, and let's remember that ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. It's a science, it's old, it's been around forever, and um, it's not just about autism. Applied Behavior Analysis is about behavior, and it isn't even just about human behavior. They use it for plants, and they use it for animals, right? But they also use it for humans, and they use it I mean, the, actually, the science of, of using ABA for autism is relatively new. It's 30 some odd years old, 33 years old, 87. I can't do the math. Um, and they were using it before that, but that's when the first big study came out that went, oh, guess what? This is an effective treatment for autism. Um, but before that, they were using it um, for... Okay, I'm just reading messages from Trayvon. Before they were using that in businesses, they still do. Fortune 500 companies use the principles of ABA. Um, you know, they use it in hospitals. In every walk of Olympic athletes use the principles of ABA to get better performance out of themselves and to enjoy the process more because it's a lot of hard work to be an Olympic athlete, right? So um, then they decided to use ABA for autism to see if it would be effective at teaching individuals with autism new skills. And would that, in effect, if we taught them new skills, would that reduce some of the behaviors that were really challenging? And lo and behold, it was wildly successful. And that's how ABA for autism was born, starting in 1987. Um, okay, so the main principle uh, well, one of the main principles of ABA is that anything that you do and that you do on a regular basis is not random. You are doing it for a reason. So think about the craziest behavior that you do or the craziest behavior that someone you love on the spectrum, not on the spectrum, you pick, doesn't matter. Think about something that somebody does that's just, you know, that you're looking at and you're like, that's just crazy. Like, why do I keep doing that? And that's a great question. And ABA would tell you that there that there's a reason why and that you are getting a paycheck. Hi, Koyan Pig. Um, glad that you're here. But you're getting a paycheck for doing that behavior. So let's just take smoking. People smoke. They smoke cigarettes or they vape, right? And, you know, ex way ex-smoker many, many, many years ago. And you know how ex-smokers are, we're militant about it, right? I think it's the most disgusting thing on the face of the planet. It smells bad, it's bleh, it's filthy, it makes you cough. Like why in the world would anybody smoke? I'm an ex-smoker, right? <laughs> right? 
But I look at it and I go, why would anybody do that? They are getting a paycheck for doing it. But different people, here's the rub. You can be doing the same activity, but different people get a different paycheck from it. I have a friend who smokes because it is a social lubricant for her. She likes that, you know, when she's in a social situation, it's kind of awkward, but there's a whole bunch of, you know, a behavior around smoking and that when there's a pause, it's like, oh, you can be inhaling on your cigarette. And so it becomes this thing that helps her with social anxiety because she's got a prop to play with, right? And she doesn't have to worry about her hands because, you know, and she doesn't have to worry about speaking because she can take a pause, you know what? I know other people that, smoke because it's the only way that they take a big deep breath in. Yeah, it's a deep breath with a whole bunch of chemicals and stuff, but it's still a deep breath and it calms them down. And of course, you know, a lot of people start doing it for whatever reason and then become addicted to it, right? But I'm here to tell you that absolutely everyone who smokes cigarettes on a regular basis has a paycheck for it. It could be something external. It could be something internal. It could be something that they're trying to get away from. It could be that the person that that person that they end up smoking during their break at work is somebody that they are interested in. And so they get to spend time with that person, right? Or it could just be that they could take a break from work. Listen, I, you know, I, I haven't been in the building for a long time, but you know, working in a big office building, it's very interesting because those of us who don't smoke, you know, it's time to take a break. And we're like, I'm just gonna push through. And the people who are smoking are like, sorry, I gotta take my cigarette break, right? And they and they take none of us go, hey, you can't take the time to do that, right? So it's a built-in break, it's a built-in excuse. Lots of reasons. Now, if we really want to be effective at helping someone to stop smoking we kind of need to know which one it is. Because if I, like, I, I, I'm so old, but there was a TV show called Kojak and there was a guy who was trying to stop smoking. So he would instead, he was a detective and he would have these lollipops because for him, it was an oral thing that he wanted to have something in his mouth and that was the need that he had to have filled. So he replaced it with a Tootsie Pop. I was too little to know. I don't know if it was successful for him, but it was his signature thing was Telly Savalas. But if we, if, if it's an oral fixation and the person needs to have something in their mouth and we replace it with a lollipop, we might be successful. But what if it was a social thing? Like they wanted to be going downstairs and having the break. Well, now with the Tootsie Pop, you don't get to have the break. So we're not going to be successful. That person is going to end up having the Tootsie Pop and then taking the break to go have the cigarette. Instead, we would have to find them another way to get their social fix in that wasn't going downstairs and having a cigarette. Do you see what I mean? You gotta know what the paycheck is before you can fix the issue because we don't wanna rip the paycheck away. That's not gonna work. That's not a long-term strategy. We rip the paycheck away, the person's just gonna wait and do it when we turn our backs, right? Because they're gonna get that paycheck. But if we replace the paycheck with something that's as good or better, then we might remove the need for that behavior. Now, okay, let's apply this to autism. So um, I always tell the story about, you know, a lot of our kids flap. And there are lots of reasons why kids flap. There are many, many, many different reasons why they would flap. But if, if we want to intervene, and we would only want to intervene because it's interrupting something else, like there's nothing wrong with hand flapping, except 
if all you are ever able to do is hand flap, then you're not going to learn how to write your own name, right? So we would pick times and places where someone could flap. And, and we're looking at it to go, what is the, the paycheck that the person is getting for being able to do this? Like if this is something that they're using to calm themselves down, we don't want to just take that away and go, you don't get to calm yourself down. That's a bad strategy, right? So if that, if the paycheck of this is calming them down, we got to find them another way to calm themselves down. And for some kids, that might mean that they massage their hand. Okay, great. Except you can't really be writing and massaging your hand at the same time. For some kids, we will, we will go from massaging your hand, because that's a calming thing, to taking the hand that's not dominant, that's not the handwriting, and um, you know massaging some other part of their body, whether it be their their knee or their thigh or their elbow while they're writing to find something that doesn't prevent them from doing, gives them their paycheck, but doesn't prevent them from doing all the things that they need to do to be happy in their lives and not be, you know, it's that obstacle thing about everybody has ops. Everyone has obstacles in front of them, but sometimes for individuals on the autism spectrum, there are more obstacles, right? And we don't want there to be more obstacles. We want them to be able to run free to the things towards the things that they want to do. So a functional behavior assessment is this process that gets at why is this behavior happening? What is the paycheck here? And it is a multi-step process that trained people uh, know how to do. It's not an easy thing for somebody uh, like you and I, who we don't have degrees in psychology um, to be able to do. But I will tell you that uh, a thing that we talk about frequently on the show, skills, um, skillsforautism.com, it has something called the CIFA. I know, more jargon. Um, but it is, it stands for Card Indirect Functional Assessment. It's not quite a full FBA, but for you and I, what it does is gives us the opportunity to look at what might be the function of the behavior. So we answer a bunch of questions about the behavior and then it will spit out this thing. And it says, it looks like this might be the function of this behavior. And then it makes suggestions about how you could effectively intervene. That is in skillsforautism.com. And it's been, you know, scientifically proven to be very effective. Although there's nothing quite as good as having an expert on the case who, and if your child is having a problem at school and they're seeing challenging behavior, one of the first best things you can do in writing is to ask for them to do a functional behavior assessment. You just say, hey, can somebody do an FBA on that? You know, you get the note home and says, you know, uh, Rebecca was misbehaving in class and spitting. And what did we say on Thursday? What's the first question you ask? What was happening right before, right? That's the first question. Um, and you can ask that in the email and then say, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we do a functional behavior assessment on that? And then they should have, more jargon, a, a BCBA, a board certified behavior analyst on staff at your school who should be able to go in and do the functional behavior assessment. That should happen. And if it can't, they should pay for somebody else to do that. But we should never be trying to change a challenging behavior without first asking ourselves, why is this happening? What is the paycheck this individual is giving? How can I give the same paycheck with something that isn't as disruptive as this? Those are the questions that we always wanna be asking if we want to effectively change behavior. We're, we should never just be ripping things away from somebody. That doesn't work. 
Um, but if we effectively replace the behavior and put in, as we were talking about the other day, things that happened differently beforehand and different consequences, we can all change our behavior. Lots of people have stopped smoking, right? Um, but if, if we just willy-nilly go in and go, I know, I'll just start eating lollipops, good luck. May or may not work. All right, and we could make it much, 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 much worse. Okay, so uh, we're gonna pause for five seconds while we refresh the stream, uh, because I guess we're getting a little bit of a lag. So everybody hold tight. I'll make faces during the five seconds. You ready? <laughs> Here we go. Are we officially refreshed? We are. There we go. I think we're refreshed. I don't know. Uh, write in and let us know if you um, are getting a lag because we're we're experiencing a little bit of a lag from time to time and we're talking to restream our new platform about that. So uh, moving on here, because we always go from the jargon of the day to the question of the day and poor Traven probably has a lot going on. Uh, oh, that's very sweet, John. John said he's been watching some videos from 10 years back when I had brown hair, John. Uh, <laughs> like, I have grown old doing this show. It's such an amazing thing to go from your mid-40s to your mid-50s uh, is, a, is a very interesting time and to do it on video. Uh, but I wouldn't trade a minute of it because it has been so amazing to be here and learn and grow with all of you and to watch my son learn and grow. Um, so anyway, today's question, what is your biggest pet peeve? Oh, and I want you, like, I know people have pet peeves. I want you to write in, just get it off your chest so that we can all be nice to each other the rest of today. Uh, but my biggest pet peeve is, um, honestly, when people have two sets of rules, one for themselves and one for everybody else, right? Um, like, reciprocity. I'm always talking about reciprocity, that if if you think it's okay to, for instance, spit in the street, if, if you think that that's perfectly okay, like I don't agree with you, but if you think that that's okay, I'm going to respect your, our differences and opinions. But then if you get mad because somebody else spit in the street, I'm, I'm like, what, what's that about? <laughs> oh, somebody else said my, my peeve is when people lie. Yeah, that's not my favorite thing either. Uh, but I just can't stand it when there when there's two sets of rules, right? Like it's like that's uh, hypocrisy. I think is what that is. So what else you got? Come on, you guys, write in other things. Let's get it up and off of our chest, and then we will move on, right? You set it down and go. All right, that has nothing to do with me for today. Uh, <laughs> here we go. We always have a topic of the week, and I'm dying to see what our topic of the week is because I picked this like a month ago. Oh. Here we go. Well, this is a great one. Acceptance versus contentment. Yeah. And this is a great one. This is a great one for this week because um, acceptance is a place of peace, accepting that everything is how it's supposed to be. And that, you know, that's, that's how it is and accepting people for who and how they are really important because if you don't, it's, we all have a hard time, right? Um, but acceptance is different than contentment. We, we need to be in acceptance, but we don't ever need to be in contentment. Contentment is, and I'm okay with how things are. Um, so for instance, oh, we got to let Bonnie in. Uh, but, but I want to say this, that, I, you know, for instance, that um, when we're talking about 
whether we're diagnosed or our children are diagnosed, sometimes that is a very miserable circumstance um, that you may not be happy with how things are right now. It's important to be in acceptance of how things are. It is not important to be in contentment. I urge you to learn, grow, change. Yeah. Okay. Bonnie Yates is here and she is an amazing attorney, special education attorney. We're thrilled to be here with her. She helps us. We've got questions for her today. She is joining us thanks to the Tolner Law Offices and she is on a tight schedule today. And so I apologize for keeping you uh, on hold, Bonnie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm flirting with the idea that maybe we need to make a form for people to fill out because people's questions are coming without enough facts. And I feel like I'm answering oh. them badly. So I need to know if you can, like the age of your child, what their disability is, you know, what state you're in. Those would be hugely helpful. So um, I am from Tolner Law Offices. We're an aid attorney special education firm. We practice in California, Nevada, and Arizona. If you have an issue in any of those states, we'd love to have a more personal conversation with you. You can go to our website and fill in the forms and we'll set up the consultation. In the meantime, what we've been doing on Autism Live is teaching all of you stuff about special education legal system because the only reason that people can't access the system is because it's so um, acronymic and jargon filled and nobody sits you down at your initial IEP and really goes over your parent rights. So knowledge is power. And, um, and I'm learning with you guys with all the questions. And I'm a little worried today that I might not do the best job of answering the questions, but I'll do because of the factual aspect that I don't have, but I'll do my best and we, we can go from there. You can okay. provide us with more information or you can reach out later and we'll- Okay. Spectacular. Thank you, Bonnie. So the first question we had uh, that was sent in to us over the weekend is we are being told that our son's school is going back to in-person in January and that we will be asked to decide next week if our child will be going back to in-person instruction. We are being told that the question is coming and that we should know our answers because it will be for the rest of the year. Can they do that? If things get better in April and we want our child to go back, surely we can do that, right? What are our rights? Well, th those are all interesting and very good questions. And I think where we are starting is with the presumption that your child has an IEP and has those rights as distinct from somebody that's just in, in general education. My read of this question um, initially was, oh yeah, they just want everybody to commit for convenience and then they don't wanna have to deal with a bunch of uncommitments when people change their minds. So I don't think they can lock you in and we'll talk about some of the reasons why. One of the things I wanted to say first is the districts are apparently quite busy with everything they're trying to manage. And where I see that is my IEPs that I request aren't getting scheduled within 30 days. I'm not getting records in a timely fashion and attorneys aren't bugging me about stuff. So if you are feeling same, I think that that's truly happening. Like I think that they are trying to run the institutions from outside. I think that with respect to every case, if they're doing the right things, it means more IEPs. Um, there's the kind of like the 
substantive content of the distance learning plan, and then there's actually just the, the, the tech aspects of things. So in your case, whether, whether or not school is going to reopen is going to be decided based on health department protocols um, with respect to the infection rate. Um, and like in New York City, that's changed a lot because the numbers were low and then they started going up dramatically again. So when I'm talking privately with clients, I tell them to assume that school might reopen in some fashion, whether it's a hybrid model um, or not, but that um, I'm expecting, um, and I hope I'm wrong, that schools may close again. So there, there could be like several different permutations of what this looks like for your child in your district before this is all over. Now, the distance learning plan is not FAPE and it's not stay put. The, the stay put that you have is in your IEP. So if school reopens again, your distance learning plan is on the shelf. It's back to the IEP you had. And until you have another one, those the last agreed upon and implemented services are going to be the ones um, that they're required to provide for you. If you do a hybrid model, that would be a little different analysis. I'm not going to go there now. But they don't have any better predictive powers really than you do. And I, I don't, I think if, if, if they put something in writing to you and said, you choose, that's it, um, and it's good for the rest of the year, you would write them back and say, well, I have an IEP and my understanding is that I have stay put rights and if school reopens, my program's going to look one way. And if school stays closed, it's going to look another way. But this is making me feel really uncomfortable. So I feel like the best thing we should do right now is have an IEP and discuss where we're at. There we go. I like that a lot. 24 hours written notice and record the meeting. There you go. Um, that, I think that's great advice. Uh, and I like it. Uh, moving on to the next one. We are being asked to bring our child in for evaluation for a special new program for at-risk students in LAUSD. If he is evaluated at risk, they will offer us a half hour of tutoring two times a week for eight weeks. It will be in school, taught by staff. That's all they will say. What can they possibly accomplish in a half hour? Is this a ploy? If we refuse it as being too difficult, not enough benefit, will it hurt our case for comp ed? Well, until you said, will it hurt our case for comp ed, I couldn't even tell from your question why, whether you had an IEP. Well, and let me tell you, because I know where this, who this question came from. There is an IEP mm -hmm. and, and we've actually had several people from LAUSD writing in about this, but one in particular that I know of, there, there, there are IEPs in this case that they've been asked to, to come in um, and to and to be evaluated for this, or in some cases, I've heard of people saying that they've already been evaluated online, mm -hmm. but they're being they've been identified as being at risk. And well, it sounds like LAUSD has some little pilot program, as it so often does. We're going to try to catch some of these kids before they come back to school, so that we owe less combat. If they're offering you this outside of an IEP meeting, I wouldn't go that route. Um, I would say I'm happy to discuss this, but if it's going to be in addition to my child's distance learning plan or my IEP, I really need to discuss with you where it fits in with everything else 
that we're doing, so let's have an IEP meeting. Maybe they got different money for this, and so they're trying to use it to reduce their special education uh, you know, prospective responsibility for comp services. But I have lots of questions. Okay, half an hour a week, that isn't much. Eight weeks isn't very long. At risk for what? Is this a reading program? If so, what are the qualifications and what's the orientation of the program? Is it even geared toward the needs that my child has? So you need a lot more information. And, you know, assume with LAUSD that there's almost always going to be a backstory. Sometimes for, for fun, I just Google LAUSD terms and things as I'm reading through an IEP. <laughs> and, and, and weird stuff pops up. You know, so um, do a little more nosing around and see what you can find out. But my my question would be, what? How do you, how do you feel your child is doing now? Do you feel your child is at risk? And if so, what does your child need in order to mitigate the risk? Do you need uh, comprehensive current assessments? Do you need additional or different services? You know, the, what you're being offered sounds like a one-size-fits-all, and that's not how we're supposed to do things in IEP land. So, um, Well, I, I know from, instinct, from talking... Go ahead. Healthy instinct to be asking questions about now. And I and the, for the conversation that I had with this parent, um, they were saying, and I'm glad that they put it in there, about um, taught by staff, and that's all that they will say, because... They were asking, will this be somebody that is special education? Will this be their teacher? And they were saying, right. no, it'll be taught by staff. And and this person even yeah, asked them. This... Well, as they were saying, could this even be a substitute teacher, somebody who has no credentials whatsoever? And they were saying, all we can say is it'll be staff. Yeah, and and the, their point, go it ahead. Taught, it could be taught by the PE coach. Right. And their point was, you know how this goes. I'm being asked to put my child at risk to come into the school. And she said, by the time I bring the child to the school, sign into the office, wait for the person to come and get them, then they walk them back to the classroom. We're not really talking about a half an hour instruction. We're talking about maybe 20 minutes if they get right down to it. And they were saying, what is this Band-Aid um, that they would actually like some help and support, but what they want is an aid to help their child while their child is getting instruction, right. not have this, have to drive across town to drop them off for, you know, for something that isn't going to be that valuable. But they said, if I refuse it, are they going to, when I come back for comp ed later on, are they going to go, oh, we offered you this? Well, tell them um, their offer in writing. Tell them that a half an hour a week isn't enough to make a meaningful difference. Tell them that you think a lot more is needed and you're going to have an IEP meeting to discuss what is needed. You know, people, I've become aware in the last two weeks that um, it's really important to not wait to hold IEP meetings. I, I feel like we ought to be holding everybody's feet to the fire and dealing with the problems now. I think your cases get better if you're meeting with them more frequently and you're saying this isn't working and then they're coming back and they're offering you more of same. So don't try to be nice or helpful and wait to have your IEP meeting. Raise your legitimate issues now. Okay. 
what are the rules of bullying online in the classroom? My daughter is being targeted during class. Girls are making faces, saying things. I feel like the teacher is so overwhelmed. She either can't or won't deal with it. I recorded a class recently. It's bad. What should I do? How can I get this to stop? Okay. Let's talk about school board policies. Every school district has a school board. Every school board has school board policies. Your school board policies on cyberbullying will be in the school board policies and you can read them and they should direct you about what to do about the bullying. Whatever you do, you have to put your concerns in writing. And the issue that I've been aware of in some places is that there weren't policies on cyberbullying, but that was like five years ago. So either this is cyberbullying or it's regular school bullying, but either way, I think you write them a letter and you say, this is going on and I've taken some videos and I'm very concerned about this and this needs to stop. What can we do about this? And you might shoot a couple more videos first. Now it's not legal to do that. I'm telling you to do something that probably I shouldn't be telling you to do, but you've already done it once anyway. Um, because this is being done over Zoom, I think there's some expectation of privacy. It's not the same as like videotaping in public. But once they hear you have videos, ooh, they're going to get nervous. And um, you can say, I feel like the teacher's really overwhelmed. That's why I'm going to other adults in the, in the, you know, in the environment and asking them to please step in. But my daughter can't be bullied. Um, it's hard enough to do distance learning without that. And if it doesn't move fast enough, and sometimes it doesn't, then you have to have an IEP meeting. And you can write them a letter, a very graphic letter about what the bullying looks like. Yeah. Yeah, but it's important not just to let it go. No, you can't let it go. And also, it, a bullying claim would be like a personal injury claim. So anytime you want to make a personal injury type claim against the school district for disability discrimination or whatever it is, you need to give notice under the government code if you're in California, California government code uh, section 6250 and the um, statutes that follow it um, require you to present a claim against a public entity. It's not difficult at all to do so. And you usually have to get their form. They have a specific form, you fill it out and turn it in. But if you don't make that claim within 180 days, or if it's on behalf of a minor, you can sometimes ask for leave to present a late claim within one year. If you don't do that, you are probably going to be precluded from bringing certain types of claims against the district. Um, but, you know, bullying should not be tolerated. I'm also scratching my head about where the other parents are um, when their kids are doing this. I guess it's possible that they're only doing it when their parents are out of the room. But, you know, you probably need to name names and talk about what's going on. These are children. They learn by the examples the adults set. So it's not about them. They're not bad children, but they are engaging in behavior that's bad behavior, and it must be stopped. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, as a parent of a, of a student who is in class, a lot of us are not in the room while our kids are in class. Like, I'm not in the... I mean, I obviously, I have an older kid, but... I'm hearing from a lot of friends who have even little kids that aren't on the spectrum that they're letting their kids be online in class while they're in another room working. I yeah. don't think there's a lot of parent oversight happening. Well, um, that would make sense because it, how, how would people be keeping their jobs otherwise? 
Right, right. Um, and I feel for the parents that have young kiddos on the spectrum that have taken a leave because it's the only way that their child can yeah. attend. Um, and the parents who are sitting, trying to work with their child, having class on the, you know, right in front of them. I've been talking to a lot of autism parents that are doing that. And I'm just like, I don't even know how you're making that happen. Yeah. Cause I don't have the ability to shift focus like that. I couldn't Great. do it. Great. It was hard enough to do, um, <clears throat> autism triage with all systems go. Right. Right. Uh, I love this last question. What paperwork do you ask for when you're looking at a case? So when you're deciding, Bonnie, whether to take a case, what do you wish that a parent had? What paperwork are you looking for? Well, I'm always thinking that I need to get an outside evaluation paid for district expense. In, and in California, the rule is if it's if it's one year and 364 days old or younger, um, I can dispute it. If it's more than two years old, I can't. So I'm probably going to want to see those assessments, those district assessments, to figure out how I can attack them to get the IEE paid for, the outside evaluation paid for. If you have any other private evaluations, I want to see that. If you have something from regional center, um, making the child el eligible, I want to read that. And then I want to look at the last two years of IEPs. That's basically where I start. And, you know, yeah. I don't have time to listen to IEP recordings, but, you know, when I'm actually listening to one because I'm drafting a due process complaint, boy, they tell a whole other story. So people, people, give written notice, 24 hours written notice and record your IEP meetings every time without fail. If you have a smartphone, you can go in and use the Rev app. It's free. All you have to do when you record is turn, put your phone on airplane mode so you don't get phone calls. It's Then you can easily email that IEP recording to anybody that you want to share it with. So there's really no reason now, you know, it's not like it was before where you had to order an expensive digital recorder. It's, 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 it's you, know, you know, essentially free once you have the phone. Um, we have like maybe five minutes left or three minutes or two minutes or one minute. Something. We've got eight minutes, but somebody just wrote in and said my request for IEE was denied. Do you want to take two seconds on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so when you request an outside evaluation at district expense, there are only two possible scenarios. One is that the district agrees to fund your IEE request. The other is if they say no, they have to file for due process and take you to hearing and prove that the, that you're um, evaluation that you got the first time around is appropriate. Now they pull, they they do a lot of um, <clears throat> stuff that I don't see when I'm involved as the lawyer, but I've been like ghostwriting letters for people and seeing what they get back. So maybe, I don't know what, can, does this person, can you tell us what state you're in? And we'll wait to see if they'll write back to say, I have an assessment, but they won't take it into consideration, but we need to know uh, what state you're in. Are you in the state of California, Arizona, or Nevada, or someplace else? Because if you're in one of those three states, let me just say this while we're waiting. If you're in California, they're in California. In California. Uh, okay. So I suggest in your case that you go to our website and you fill in the form and you have a specific consultation because it's going to get tricky and I'm going to want to see what you got back from the district. And so we could have a whole program about IEEs. It would be a good idea. They're very important. But I think for now, um, the district cannot say no and do nothing. They have to file 
for due process against you. But when parents are involved and they don't know that that's the rule, sometimes the districts just say no and they think they can get away with it. So let's have a further discussion about IEEs, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and let's see if we can answer some of your questions off the air. But in the meantime, go to Tolner Law Offices online. You can Google Bonnie Yates Tolner Law Offices, go to their website, fill out the form for uh, you know the 15-minute evaluation. And uh, Traven just put up the, the website there um, so that you can have a further conversation with Bonnie about it and make sure that you're getting your rights. Okay, okay. now, there's lots of interesting things brewing and I probably have like four minutes left. So. You got six. You still have six. Oh, I have six. So I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit on them and see if any of them is interesting to you. Um, one is the concept of predetermination, and whether a district comes into an IEP meeting with a set opinion, a fixed opinion about what they are and aren't willing to do, and nothing you do can change their mind. The problem is, although predetermination is nice if you have it as an issue, not if you have it as a fact in your life, it's very hard to prove because what the more skillful evaluators do is they come in and they, they will go through the motions of listening to you and discussing your point of view. And they will come up with reasons and they will tie reasons to assessments and discussions. So it is, it is hard to um, actually prove predetermination, although we know it goes on all the time. Now, um, this is interesting because LRP, Special Ed Connection, puts something out about how to avoid the appearance of predetermination in remote learning. Um, and I'm just going to quickly hit on the things that they said you're supposed to do so it doesn't just look as if you're going through the motions, although I think that the fact that they had to write this suggests that there's some concern that they would be. So the first, right. the first thing they tell educators is watch your language. It's all in your language choice and how you're speaking. Take, for instance, an accommodation that makes sense for an in-person learning environment, such as preferential seating. Instead of automatically saying, we don't do that in a virtual setting, uh, have a conversation about the need you're trying to meet with that accommodation. Then ask how you can do it in a virtual setting. It's phrasing. Come into meetings saying, we can do this, um, rather than come in saying, we can't do this. Um, they also suggest that, that you make reference to the student's documents so, th so that it looks as if you are um, actually considering information that you have and not just making a snap judgment. Uh, check in with the family more often. Um, like, how's it going? How are you feeling? And then finally, keep notes and communicate. Have meeting notes of what was discussed and any disagreements. Note the discussion around how you plan to check in at the end of each quarter or semester to see how things are working. If you plan to provide a certain accommodation, take notes of what you will need. Documenting all this and communicating it to the students, virtual educators is key. So anyway, uh, the reason that we have cases that raise the issue of predetermination it's because predetermination occurs. So if you have it happen, like I had one client who actually was handed a, a, an envelope during her IEP meeting with a prior written notice in it saying no to the report that her outside psychologist was going to present at the meeting. 
So that's a more clear case cut case of predetermination. Okay, another thing that's caught off the press, unfortunately, is the Capistrano case, um, which was decided very recently, and it, it addresses about six different issues in district court. But the one that's important for us right now is uh, that for students that are in private schools, because their parents have a faith dispute with the district, up until now, it's been the obligation of the district to schedule an annual IEP meeting every year to meet with the family, even while the child is in private school. Well, the yeah. Capistrano case changes that and says, it's now the parent's responsibility. If they wanna have an IEP, they have to ask for it. So Shannon just made the, the most appropriate face <laughs> for what I was describing, letting me know that she understood what I was saying. So here's what I'm saying. Those IEPs are important and you're gonna to have to remember to have them. If the district isn't obligated to offer FAPE, you're gonna lose the ability to potentially attack an issue and make a case that you, you need other special education services or that the district needs to reimburse for your private placement. The way in California up until now is that the district forgot to hold an IEP because the child was in private school and they forgot about him. That was the district's bad and it had consequences. So this case has now shifted the responsibility onto the parents to hold the IEP. So, Okay. So it doesn't take away our right to have it, but it means that we have to instigate it. So we're exactly. going to have to be on that. Yeah. And that, uh, that it's, 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 it's troubling, you know? Yes, it is troubling. And I thank you for updating us on that and don't let us forget it. Unfortunately, we're totally out of time now, but we appreciate you and we appreciate Tolner Law Offices. And if people want to reach out to you, they certainly can through Tolner Law Offices. And if uh, Traven could, if you could pop that back up there, but Bonnie, we, we so appreciate you. We're going to be back here. There it is up on the screen, Tolner Law Offices. We're going to be back here with you next week. All right. We'll be. That's exactly All right. So I uh, just want to say, because we got to go, I want to tell everybody, thank you so much for being here. Keep your questions coming in. Make sure you give yeah, Bonnie specifics. Yeah, just remember, uh, just remember, the more info, the more helpful I can be. There you go. Uh, we're back tomorrow with one of our best of Temple, Temple Grandin. We hope that everybody takes the opportunity to watch that and to exercise your right to vote. We'll be back live on Wednesday with Dr. Doreen Grandpichet here on Autism Live. Don't forget Dr. Barry Prezant, author of Uniquely Human will be here with us on Thursday. If you want to, you can go ahead and submit some pre-questions ahead of time. Uh, then on Friday, we have Leah Hirschfeld back joining us to talk about research having to do with autism. I think we're starting to talk about the gastro thing, all the studies about gastro. But uh, until uh, we'll be back live again, as I said, uh, on Wednesday, but Temple Grandin tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>